0: If you're just joining us, or maybe you're you're not, this is the fourth and final uh, message in the series called Rhythms of Grace, and my hope is that through the last three or four weeks, I guess five weeks, um, that you will have um, realized that we are formed as people, as humans, um, by repetition. Um, that is, our thoughts, our values, our beliefs are are, are formed by what we practice, or um, what we call rhythms of life. And that's, that's true across the board. Uh, you, you, you take a topic, and without discipline or practice, um, you do not mature or change. If, if you decide that, or if your regular habit of eating, for example, you know, is to eat a Big Mac every day, and you throw a salad in there once a month... I guarantee you that salad doesn't do you a hill's beans worth of difference. It's just what you always eat, right? It's the ra- uh, it's the rhythm of your diet that actually determines whether you're going to be healthier or not healthy. And it's just true across the board is that it's it's um, through repetition we are formed and we grow, or or um, negatively we, we 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 deteriorate. I mean that's true also in terms of information. If you are repeatedly exposed to Fox News as your source of what's going on in the world then like it or not, that will form in you opinions, um, values, and views of life, or it will reinforce what you already believe. It is formative. On the other side of the scale, if if your news source that you constantly drink from is NBC or CNN, well, then it is going to have a formative effect on your thoughts and your beliefs, on what you value, whether you know it or not. And notice I'm trying to, like, be politically neutral here. (laughs) right? Um, not positive or negative. but um, this, and By the way, this is uh, just kind of reinforced to me. Every time we go on an Israel trip, and um, we want to place a high priority on education in our church, and uh, one of the things that we do to educate people is, um, you know, we take groups of people over to the Holy Land so that they can actually see what they read about. You know, that these cities that, that are described in the Old New Testament actually exist, and you can see their ruins. It's it's, it's an amazing um, education. But whenever we we advertise it, people are like, why would you want to go there? Super dangerous, right? So sometime when we actually plan another trip, and you say to me, isn't it dangerous? I want you to remember this message, okay? Um, For me, I'd live there if I could, And the reason people think it's dangerous is because we're constantly, whenever we're exposed to news about Israel, it's always negative, and it's always people blowing up, buses blowing up, or Hamas or Hezbollah bombing the Israeli people, so it feels like everybody's dying over there, right? That's just how you feel, because your thoughts and your beliefs about the Holy Land have been formed by what you've been exposed to repeatedly. But here's just a side note, just to prove the point. Do you know last year in 2016, 90 people died of terrorist attacks in Israel? 90 people Okay, get that, 9-0. San Francisco last year, 60 people were murdered, thereabouts. 60, 90, it's like, okay, 30 less people died in San Francisco than all of Israel. Last year in 2016, in Chicago, 762 people were murdered. 90, 762. But nobody's saying, man, I can't go to Chicago, it's dangerous there, right? No, because we haven't been exposed to that. It's not as repeatedly. So just just to show that we are formed by our thoughts, opinions, and belief, by what we're exposed to the most and what voice we listen to the most. Here's the thing, for the Christian, here I'm not going to be neutral. Um, We must be formed by something infallible a higher voice than the voice of either stream of news um, by something eternal and something divine. And if it's the repetition that forms us, it means we must be repeatedly, rhythmically exposed to that voice, to that eternal divine truth. And that's, that's, that's part of like the the central motivation of the, of the series is for us to recognize what we're constantly doing by way of repetition is forming who we are in either positive or negative ways. We looked the f- first three weeks basically at, at some of the rhythms we do as a church family, that part of your rhythm of life should be to be part of a believing community. Um, that you should be devoted to it, coming to it, gathering together, to realize together, sing, to hear, to read about truths that are eternal and infallible, so that they form us as a community of believers. And we spent two weeks looking at that, what we're supposed to be doing when we gather together. And those practices are supposed to be, and they are, formative. They develop us and strengthen us and change us and transform us. Well, this week, the final message, I want to turn towards the individual Private or personal um, repetitions or disciplines of grace, or what we've called rhythms? What are those things we should be doing in our lives that um, are going to form us into the image of Jesus and grow us as people? That's that's what we're going to look at this morning. This is for you as a personal, um, uh, in your personal, private life. And my, my hope and prayer is that we would practice it for some of you. You may be already. Um, practicing these things, and perhaps this will just be an encouragement or maybe just a renewed um, commitment to do it. Maybe it will just recenter you a little bit. And for others who don't do these things at all, maybe it'll be like, hey, this is what I need to do in my life, all right? And so this is uh, imminently practical for you, um, and I intend it to be that way. Uh, Before I move on, I just have to make one really clear and important um, clarification, and that is, you know, when we talk about repetition, or you can call it habit, or um, rhythms growing us, we have to be careful not to default into a, well, if I do this, then I'm going to grow, and putting ourselves in the driver's seat. Uh, we have to recognize that the faith that we have, if, 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 you, if you've come to genuine faith in Jesus Christ, that is a result of a miracle that happened in your soul. The miracle of new birth, where God opened it, and you're like, wow, this is true. God exists and He's done something for me in Christ Jesus and through Him forgiven my sin and made me one of His own. And it starts with a miracle in, in here, but that's God's work. But then the, the, the cultivation of our faith and of our heart is something that we cooperate with, that, that we um, trusting that God has graciously loved us and given us these, these means of grace or avenues by which we grow or practices. Uh, by grace, by faith trusting that God is going to graciously change us, well, that puts you in a different place than I'm in control. It's like, no, God, I need you to use these things that you've given to me so that my heart might grow. We come with a sense of dependent, humble faith. Otherwise, it just reverts back to a, this is my thing. Uh, These are rhythms of grace that come out of desperate faith. So, caveat said and concluded. So, Psalm 77. Actually, before I get to Psalm 77, let me just at least give you the sense that this is the pattern of life for people. Like um, some people in the uh, Old and New Testaments, this was their practice, was basically to have time alone with God. This is when you go by yourself and you yourself are with God. It was the practice of Old Testament prophets. It was the practice of of Jesus and the apostles. And here's just a sample, just so you kind of lock it in your mind, that there's an important pattern set for us. Uh, the prophet Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, says he went uh, to his house, he went up into his upper, uh, upper chambers, that's the ellipsis there, um, got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to, uh, before his God, before that's him communing with the Lord, as he had done previously. That is, that was the pattern of his life. He, he had these three times a day where he would come before the Lord right? He would spend time with God by himself. Jesus, and this is just a sampling of, of Jesus' own patterns of life. Uh, Matthew chapter 14, 23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Uh, Mark 1, 35. early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed, went into a desolate place. That's a place where no one's there, all by himself, a desolate place, and there he prayed. That is, he was with the Lord. Um, and when it was day, this is Luke four forty two. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. Apostle Peter, kind of same thing. The next day, Peter went up onto house house housetop about the sixth hour to pray. It's like, like even Jesus, the Son of God. Like there was a time in which he needed to be away from Peter, James, and John. He needed to be away from the fishing boats and the fishing nets. Just an isolated time where he could be with the Lord. And, and, if, and listen, if the Son of God, if Jesus himself needed this, as a human, as a man, he was God, but he was also man, fully human, um, then how much more do we need this time where we're just like, where we do our best to isolate ourselves just to spend time with God himself? You know, where you don't have the dog licking your face, um, where there's children jumping up and down on top of a couch, where the TV is not on, or, your, face, or your, your your phone isn't blowing up. Just that time where you have with the Lord. It's, a, it's the pattern left for us by by men and women in the Bible. So it, it ought to be our practice as well. And I know it's not easy for everybody. You know, I'm a morning person, so for me it's in the morning. My wife is more of a night person. For her it's in the night. I realize it could be tough for somebody who's a mom with young kids or somebody who's a single parent to, like, have this time. My advice to you is you have to work with what you got, right? But this was a pattern. They needed it. And I believe it's important for us to have this regular rhythm this repetition of our time with God Himself. Okay? I hope that's clear. And what I hope you will begin to practice or continue to practice if you don't already. So, with that laid out, let me draw your attention to, to, to Psalm 77. It's not a traditional place in Scripture you go to to talk about um, disciplines, um, but I chose Psalm 77 for some very specific reasons. One is that it, it comes from a place of struggle. Like I'm going to read a couple of verses in the middle of this psalm, written by a human who believed in God, um, where you re- realize that this man is really struggling with doubt, like you and I. I have, all of us have our different struggles and areas of struggle in life. And so this is to kind of root these disciplines within the context of a, of a human struggle of faith. Um, t- two, wh- while the psalm isn't about these particular disciplines of being with God, um, you see the process of him using them. In fact, really most of the Psalms are are, um, men of God struggling with life in ways that utilize these things. And I'm going to draw out two main things. That that is, it permeates them. This is their practice. And so we can learn from their practice, not just a, a description. So with that said, we're going to kind of move in two directions. And one is I want to just lay out the goal of time with God. And, and really, all we're doing is taking one single point and just fleshing it out a little bit. Um, uh, the goal. And then secondly, what are the essential components that we need that are you can't reduce anything down further? The goal. Goal of our time with the Lord, um, you know, in private. And it's personal communion with God. That is Communion. Communion is one of those words that talks about or means the, um, the sharing of one's inner life with each other in a way that's reciprocated. It's sharing your heart with somebody and them sharing your heart with you. You know, when you, when you go out on a date with your, your spouse or your fiancé or your significant other, boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, um, you, 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 you do that ultimately if you're a loving person, <laughs> to actually spend time with them, that it's not about the chicken Alfredo, that it's not about the drive there in the car, that it's not about the restaurant itself. Really, at the end of the day, all those are peripheral. What it's about is communion. It's about the sharing of life. It's about the sharing of heart. And that that's ultimately what you want to do, what we want to do in the regular practice of life, is I, you want to meet with God. Um, you want to hear him speak to you, his heart, and you want to be able to express your heart to him. That's that's the idea of, of, of communion. I want to know you. Um, I want to know how you've worked on my behalf. I want you to speak through those things. And I want my life to be aligned to your will and to your word, apart from which it damages that communion. That's what we're talking about. That's, that's, the, that's the goal of time alone. And it, that keeps it from becoming a mechanical exercise. Like what we're, we're advocating here is not you know, crossing your legs, put your fingers in a circle and doing some kind of a yoga exercise and emptying your mind of, of, of all thoughts. That's, that's not Christian. Uh, that's Eastern. Uh, Christian discipline is actually quite the opposite. It's intensely relational. It's coming together with a person who has a name. His name is Yahweh, who has revealed himself in Jesus, and it's to, to commune with him, you to him and him to you. It's very personal, and it's that makes it an aspect of love and, and joy and, and intimacy. That's, that's communion. It's, that's, that's the Christian practice. So the psalmist, Psalm 77, it is a highly individualized psalm. It's about his own experience and what he does with it. As I said, his, 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 uh, it's a psalm of struggle. This is his life situation out of which he writes. Um, verse 7. And notice how honest it is. Don't read it yet, okay? Just trust me, don't read it yet, because I, I forgot something. <laughs> this psalm was written by Asaph, A-S-A-P-H, and he's written a number of psalms. And if it's the same Asaph as writes Psalm 79, which is two chapters later, then he either has witnessed or his life has followed the complete destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and the people of God, the people of Israel, have been slaughtered, and their enemies have left all their bodies out in the open sun, exposed to be eaten by birds. In other words, he's writing out of a, either a reflection on or an experience of a Holocaust. If there's ever a time when your faith begins to wane or waver. It's when you see things that seem so out of tune with God's goodness and love. And that seems to be the context out of which he writes, which is why you can understand. Now we can read it. All right, verse seven. He says, "Will the Lord spurn forever? It's a word for anger, um, putting off, and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Has His promises come to uh, are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Um, hasn't He in His anger shut up His compassion?" This questioning, like. These words are like foundational characteristics of God himself, like without steadfast love, without his promises coming true, that is if they they just die, without grace and compassion, those are all the core of who God is. Without those things, there's no hope. He's saying, is this what I see around me? I see the carnage. It's just like, where's your steadfast love? Where's your compassion and grace? You ever felt that way? You just look at the world around you and you're just like, man, this just doesn't seem congruent with the God that is revealed in Scripture. And you're just questioning? You're not the first person. Nor will you be the last person. That's, the psalmist is like, this is where I'm at. A place of struggle. Okay? that's, And it's not just that he does these things. Um, comes to the Lord in times of struggle, if you know Asaph's other writings, this, what, he's, what he does here is, is the practice of his life. Because in this struggle, this is, this is what he does. He says, this is how he starts off, I cry aloud to God. He's just telling us what he does. This is his process. I, himself, this is private and personal, I call aloud Cry aloud to God. Aloud I, I, uh, to God. That's a way of um, uh, communicating urgency and intensity. It's just, man, I, I need you. And he will hear me. That's his confidence. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. Uh, in the night, my hand is stretched out without weary. It's like it's reaching for the Lord. It's like you're what I need in the middle of all this carnage. I need you. I need you to hear me. This is a man who wants communion with the Lord see that's that's the heart behind why you take a, a time of solitude in your day is, is to be with him, not just with the book but with him who's revealed himself in a book that's that's the heart of it and we in the you know where we stand are in such a better place than than the psalmist was you know I, when they thought about communing in the presence of the Lord, they, they thought of a physical temple with walls, and there was this curtain that separated them from the Holy of Holies. That is, there was a sense of separation between them and God. They, they communed on the basis of promise that God would someday take care of all their sin. It's like God lived in a gated community, you know? A gated community is where you can't get into unless you have a special pass or an owner is called ahead of time. You can't get in. They're cut off. It's like in the, the days of the Old Testament, they came to the gate. But in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has cleansed us fully and completely and made us qualified to enter the gate anytime we want. In fact, he is the gate. So that, like the, the New Testament would call us, like, listen, you're not, you're not gate dwellers anymore. Like, uh, you, you come into the presence of God confidently and boldly because you know the price of your admittance has been paid in full. And you come with that confidence as a son to a father and you commune with him. So we have a basis of communion that they didn't have. They did commune with the father but we have a firm foundation that has qualified us uniquely to do that. So that's the goal. And I I think it should be a daily goal. I don't want to impose a number on you. Daniel did it three times a day. But just to say, you know, if you only had a conversation with your wife once a week, it would be a horrible marriage. But if there's communion with your wife where you get together each day and talk through and find out how each other's doing, that's a healthy thing, right? Seems to me, just based upon common sense, we ought to be in a pattern of regularly coming into the presence of the Lord and communing with Him in private. And you have to decide what that looks like for you. But my encouragement is that it be at least a daily thing. So that's the goal. Heart to heart. You speak to God, he speaks to you. Now, what exactly does that look like? Here are, if you will, like the essentials. And there's nothing new about this. This this is kind of the same old thing. It's just um, in a different psalm, in a different text, and maybe thought of in a slightly different way one of those essentials of course is is what we call prayers that's the way we communicate and there's so many different forms of it in terms of what it looks like It's like you know you can you can pray a prayer of lament which means it's you're grieving to the lord you can uh, pray a prayer of praise and thanksgiving where you're just really grateful to the Lord. There are prayers of confession where you're just really honest about your, your brokenness and your fallenness that I really screwed up this week. That's another form of prayer. I mean, there's so many different ways that prayer expresses itself. Um, here, we've already read this verse, but this is how he begins, you know, in the, in the middle of his, his chaotic, crazy world that he lived in and his doubts, struggling with doubts. He says, I cry aloud to God, I cry aloud. He, he, he prays. He brings his soul to the Lord. Um, now, I know that there's, for, for, for most in here, I would think that the idea of praying to you is, is, isn't, isn't menacing. It isn't um, confusing. It's just you talking to God. And, and I venture to say most of you, like, do that. I know for others who are newer to the faith, it, it can be kind of a, I'm not sure exactly how to pray. Is there a particular form you have to go through? Do you need to use Old English to pray? Do you need to say "thou" and "thee"? If I get the form wrong, is God going to hear me? Do I have to say "in the name of Jesus" at the end of every one? Otherwise, it's lost in heaven somewhere. You know, I mean, these are these are things people think about. So, 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 how, like, how to, to help me, Dan? Help as a newer believer. Or maybe I'm not even a believer yet, I just, I just want to understand how this works. Or maybe you're an old believer and you're like, wait a second, I've been locked into and overly constrained by a form. Listen to this. There, there, forms can be helpful. By forms, I mean, in what order do I pray? Do I commune with the Lord? Do I offer up my speech to him? You know, there's the ever-popular ACTS, A-C-T-S, right? Acronym for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, which is just an old fancy word for asking for things, Right? Acts, it's good. Cover is all the major categories. And I know that's very helpful for some people. It's just to start by adoring God, appreciating all that he is, confessing your own sin, you know, giving thanks for not only the spiritual blessings, but the physical blessings in at the end, you know, asking your needs. And God wants us to ask. He wants us to petition. That's fine. We don't have to pray that way. Maybe others use the, the Lord's Prayer as kind of a skeleton. You know, our Father who art in heaven. And the first part is about the glory of God and, and, the, and his plan. And then the second part is about the personal petition for forgiveness and deliverance from evil. That kind of two parts, God and me, us. That, that's a good model too, right? It's, it's like can't go wrong with Jesus' prayer. But you don't have to pray that way. You know, if you, if you take all the prayers of the Bible and spread them out on a table most of which are in this book we call the Psalms. They are both songs, as in S-O-N-G-S, and also prayers, right? You realize none of them are exactly alike. Not all of them start with praise. Not all of them start with thanksgiving. Sometimes they start with confession. Sometimes the order's reversed. And I think that what that does is that liberates us to be bound by a particular form of prayer and at the same time frees us to just speak to God, right? Right? There's there's just nothing magical about it. If you get the words wrong, he still understands what you're saying. He gets your heart, right? I mean, a lot of the prayer analogies that are given in the New Testament are father and son. That is father and child. That's how we're supposed to think of it, you know. And I can tell what my kids are asking, even if they don't know what they're asking for themselves, right? I remember my daughter was a year and a half year old. A year and a half year old. Year and a half old, barely able to speak. Didn't know a lot of English, didn't know a lot of words, but she knew this one word. And every morning she would say this primitive prayer to her parents. She would say, "Gako." Now, if you were coming from the outside in, you're like, what kind of language is this girl speaking? Is that Spanish or Swahili Is that Sanskrit? What is it? Hindi? I don't know. It's like, no, that's her heart word for I want my bottle, right? We knew it. We heard it. All that to say, listen, you don't get the words right. God sees you. How do you know what you're asking for? And that's so comforting. It's just once again freeing. But that's how the Lord wants us to pray. He wants us to come to him and just, just tell him what's on our heart. Now, having said that, there are some common denominators in prayer that I think are important to recognize. One is that all of the prayers are expressions of faith. A true prayer assumes that God exists. It assumes that God is a person who has not physical ears, but spiritual ears, who listens because he cares about his people and therefore, at the right time, will answer. It's, prayer is ultimately, a, a true prayer is an expression of the fact that I believe. Even if the world is coming down around you, even when there's people slaughtering around you, it's just like there's still this expression that you're still there. So it's an expression of faith. Another core common denominator is that the prayers of the Bible are honest, and the honesty and the boldness with which they are honest, like, liberates us to be able to just be honest with the Lord and what we're experiencing. We, we read a couple minutes ago, like, this psalmist, Asaph, a scripture writer and a leader in worship, a writer of worship songs, is like, is your steadfast love still here? Are your promises have they fallen off the edge of the table? He's struggling. He's being honest with the Lord about it. And that's how the Lord wants us to be with him. He's, he knows what's going on anyway. can't fool him. If you're wrecked over your marriage, if you're wrecked over your children, he knows it. Tell him about it. He wants you to trust him with that. Just consider some of the flavors of honesty in the Psalms and one from Job. The psalmist of 130 says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. He's like, I'm I'm in the Mariana trench. I am deep. I can't even get my head above water. That's honesty about being overwhelmed. 82. Psalm 82 is a complaint. It's like, how long, talking to the Lord, will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? It's like, look what's going on around here. It sure seems like you're not in charge. That's a complaint. It's, but it's an, a complaint expressed in faith. I, I don't understand how this can happen. I don't understand how people could be, be, your people could be eaten by birds and you'd be good. I, a complaint... Or this is the Psalm of David 13. He feels abandoned by the Lord. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? It's like, hello, are you there? Have you ever felt like that? Like, man, I just don't feel like God's anywhere to be seen. Obviously, you don't see him with your physical eyes, but I just don't feel like his presence is with me. Listen, you're not the first person to feel that way. And you're not going to be the last. If King David, imagine after God's own heart, felt like the Lord had hidden his face from him, he's forgetting him, you're not alone. Well, what do you do with that? Become a, a cynic, agnostic, disbeliever, unbeliever? Or do you say, you know what? I'm telling him about it. Or I just don't feel like you care. I don't feel like you're here. That's just honesty. These are honest prayers. You know, or, or David, another uh, psalm of David. He's, he's struggling with his own sin and guilt, and who hasn't screwed up? Some of us at various degrees of screwed upness, but... You know what do you do with it? You're honest. I have mercy upon me, O God. According to your steadfast love, is like I have sinned against you and you alone, O Lord. I committed adultery with Bathsheba. It's like honest. And this one from Job is just an honest surrender. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Either way, though my heart is wrecked, blessed be the name of the Lord. So they're honest. So they're expressed in faith. They are honest. But another common denominator with the prayers of the Bible, with the the exception of Psalm 88, it's the only psalm where there's no word of thanksgiving or praise. Nearly all the others, while they're honest with the Lord, come back to the fact that I will thank you and I will praise you in the midst of calamity. In the good times, in the bad times, when it's sunny and when it's raining. And that, too, is a part of how we should commune with the Lord. Like, in faith, honestly, but also, you know, willingness to thank him and um, and show gratitude to him because he works through darkness to bring light in his children's life. And the fourth one is that they all eventually return to the word. That is, that's That's kind of the anchor point is that they come back to what God has revealed okay so that's those are some ways that you know we're supposed to honestly in faith pour out our heart to God that's prayer you just got to talk to him tell him what's on your heart now if you need help with that you're like okay I'm still really brand new can you help me a little bit like I, I want to learn how to do this here are just a couple of suggestions to um, actually three books One is a man by the name of uh, Dr. Kenneth Boa, who writes uh, two books, two volumes. It might be a third, I don't know, but I did the first volume. All he does is kind of teach you how to pray the Scripture back to God, which which is a cool thing to do, right? Just like I'm actually praying in my own words what God has written in Scripture. I couldn't commend that enough. Just like if you're wanting to wait to just learn how to pray, great little book to lead you in that. If you want something a little deeper and ro- more robust, and David read from it earlier, um, the Puritan prayers, the Valley of Vision, it's, you just pray those and allow them to be part of your, your prayer life. They, they, they'll take you to some, some interesting places. <laughs> All right? But those are just, again, being totally practical here, these are two ways that, that might be able to help you if you're not already comfortable just knowing what it means to pray. So that's, that's our heart to God with some hopefully helpful tools. The other one is God's voice and heart to us, right? We want to hear God speak. And the question a lot of people ask today is, does God speak still today? And the answer has to be, yeah. Right here. (laughs) I know he speaks here, right? In the scripture. In the psalmist, in his practice. What does he come back to? Like, okay, his, the time of life is horrible. He's praying and crying out. His hand is extended. I, I'm without wearying in, in the night. At the end of the psalm, this is what leads him out of his place of disbelief or his struggle with belief. And as I read this, the underlined portions all point to um, an event in his Bible, the Exodus, you know, when Moses... Uh, God, through Moses, delivered the people of uh, Israel out, out from underneath the thumb of Pharaoh and, and led them in particular through the Red Sea. You're going to you sense he's talking about water and him leading them. So he's reflecting on an event in his Bible. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. That is before my lifetime. Now, where did he get access to those wonders of old? His Bible. Um, 12, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. I'm going just, just sink my mind into what you've done in the past, the amazing things. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God. Um, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With your arm redeemed your people. That is Exodus terminology. You know, I redeemed them with a mighty and outstretched arm. The, the, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lit up the world, and earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron, like through the Red Sea with towering piles of water on both sides. You see what he's doing? This is, he's meditating on his Bible. It wasn't as big as ours. He probably had the first five, right? Books of Moses. And what is he doing in his, in his time of struggle? You know, he's praying, speaking to God, but then he goes back to the place where God speaks. He's actually thinking about how God has acted in the past as recorded in Scripture. And you just think about it for a moment. He's thinking back, okay. Man, the people of Israel were in in bondage for potentially centuries. And they cried out to the Lord. And after however long of a period of time of darkness, God answered. And God led them out. He delivered them. And then he, he shepherded them personally, though we didn't see his footsteps. He was there the whole time. So if God in his mighty deeds was loving his people, though they didn't always see it, at least some of the generations didn't, now he's he's ever been as much with me as he was with them in the middle of my carnage. And the meditation on the works of God recorded in the word of God become uh, like fresh hope, fresh Strength, fresh faith, fresh courage. That's who you are. And you know, for us as Christians, you know, we don't so much look back to the Exodus. At least not the physical one. You know, when God redeemed Israel out from underneath Pharaoh's thumb, it was for a temporary period of time. And that was just a shadowy anticipation of the time in which God himself would come And he would deliver us once and for all, eternally, from our greatest enemies of death and sin and judgment and wrath, and deliver us to the greatest gift we could ever receive, and that is the presence of God himself. And we go back at the center of our meditations, like when we, the biggest work in scripture is like the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, where everything changed, and listen, if he loved me enough to offer himself in my place and the place of every other believer who would come to faith, that means he's still with me. He still loves me. Though I can't see his footprints, he's here. And you find strength as you commune with the Lord through the word. That's that's what the Lord has given to us for our to nurturing and cultivation of our relationship with him. And uh, it ought to be the practice of, of Christians in their private worship or private communion with God to, to dwell upon the word. It's like we don't just, it's, this isn't just the words of God. It is. But it's also words that record the works of God. And those too we should meditate on. And I, I tell students when I have the chance to talk to them about the Bible and how you should approach it, it's like stop thinking of it as a book because it kind of has a mental obstacle to it. It's like a book. Like most kids don't like books, right? You got to read Moby Dick. <sighs> I got to read the Bible. <sighs> like think of it like like a window, right? Like this tells us through events and stories. Who God is, comes, the light comes through it. And to come to it asking the Lord, Lord, show me you and show me the wonders of your works and how my heart can be edified and strengthened by these works because the God who was there yesterday is the same God who's there today. Amen. The window. It's, if it works for you, it works for you. But it's just like, that's how to view the scriptures. Come to it as a window through which to understand and know, know the Lord. Now, I know what some of you are thinking some of you would just, if you br- be brutally honest with me, you're like, listen, Dan. The whole idea of like uh, reading the Bible every day or meditating on scripture, even if you have the window thing in place, it's just, I just don't get it. I, I, I read the Bible, I don't get anything out of it, so I don't get anything out of it, so I just don't do it. I get it, right? This is, this is a complex book, right? It's it's got poetry and narrative and wisdom and prophecy and letters and gospel and apocalyptic and it's just like this is a complex book and quite honestly there's parts of it that are boring I'm probably not supposed to say that there's there's times I get through Leviticus and I just want to like well I just want to stop I was like why did you put that in there I don't know. I know that there's a reason, and I'm still working through it, and there's some things in the Bible I still don't understand. So I understand. I just want to affirm there's complexity to it. But you know what? There's complexity in learning to play the guitar well. Right? You start by with a G chord. Oh man, I got the G chord down. Strum. I got a C. Do the C chord. Okay, C. Just strum. I got a D chord. Oh, it's hard. D chord up. Strum strum, strum. So I got got G, C, and D. Now I can play most worship songs ever written in the 20th century. (laughs) But then it's like, okay, there's a lot more chords than that. And then you got to move in rhythm this hand. Then this hand's got to do the right rhythm of the right. I can't play guitar. I'm just, you know, I know music, but I, you know, it's like you got this thing going to one thing and this thing and the other thing, and it's not too hard, not too soft. And then if you add singing to it, it's completely impossible, right? (laughs) It's complex. But you know, there are people who have just start. And over time and over practice, pretty soon they, they get good at it. Golf's hard too. Golf's complex at least it is for me. That's why I don't play well. People say, yeah, you gotta shift your hands. No, no, move it like this. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I have to worry about my hands and my swing and my backswing and how I stand and where my hips go and all this. just like too complex for me. It's like, no, just just start somewhere, right? Went out and swing club. My point being, listen, I understand it could be complex. But if you don't start somewhere, you won't get anywhere. So just start somewhere. And, and before long, if, if it becomes a rhythm of your life, you'll look back at 10 years from now and you'll go, wow. T- the Lord has just it deepened my sense of, of rootedness in him um, in a way that's not just cognitive, but it's actually my heart finds greater confidence and peace because I'm, I'm, I'm allowing... Who he is as revealed in Scripture and the works to, to change me. It happens. I know this. It's... Yeah, thanks, Paul. I didn't know what else to say, so you just kind of filled it in. <laughs> but uh, listen, if you, if you want a place to start, there, you know, there's, here's, again, practical. You know, someone came to me last service and said, hey, you know, daily bread works out there. There's a verse, and then it kind of breaks it down. It's good. And for those of you who love the daily bread, awesome. I, I want you to start somewhere. But you know, I would love, I would love for our church to be a church where people know, and this is a goal, a working goal, know their Bibles and know the scripture for themselves. Are able to rightly divide it for themselves so that they're, they're not always dependent upon a preacher or a teacher or a podcast, but learning how to do it for themselves. And it means starting somewhere. So there's, you know, different Bible reading programs out there. You know, one of the old ones is Robert Murray McShay. And that's uh, the one on the left. And you can download it on in a PDF for free on the Internet. Try it. If you want to read through the Bible in a year, that's one way to do it. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that's way too much for me. I can't read that much. You know what? Don't read it all. Just read part of it. Read what you can do, and then the next day go into the next thing. Don't try and catch up. Just, just start. Nobody said you had to read all of that, but start somewhere. Another one, and this is really super easy because you could carry it with you on your phone. So, although going to the grocery market and standing in line reading your Bible isn't the best place to do it. You know, the, the Book of Common Prayer, there's this thing called the Daily Office, and all it is, I, I don't know why they call it Daily Office. It sounds like some horrible thing, but, you know, <laughs> Daily Office. But all it is, is is scripture readings for the day. And it's all Bible. And you just tap on it, and up comes ESV. It's just like, it's all right there, and the next day it automatically goes to the next day, and it's free. It's just, all you gotta do is say, hit get at the app store, right? And you take it with you. And um, and if you're like, oh, it's too much. I can't do that much. Just like look at the reading Psalm 61, 62, Psalm 68, blah, 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 blah. Just do what you can do, right? Just start somewhere um, in the scripture. And and before long, I think you'll find yourself um, growing um, in your knowledge of God, the knowledge of his word, the knowledge of his works, and also all of these expressions of, of prayer, heartfelt, honest uh, expressions of faith to God. And this this is, again, not rocket science. This is a rhythm of life that the people of God have been practicing for thousands of years. And it ought to be something that we practice in our own lives. And so I'm, I'm commending it to you and encouraging you. We're not at the front side of a new year. I know we just, you know, left January in the past, now we're in February, which I can't believe it's already here, but we're still on the front edge of the year, and I just encourage you to start somewhere and, and make personal, private communion with God um, something that becomes a routine in your life. Because we are formed by repetition. And if that repetition includes time with the Lord, an honest prayer, and also careful, reflective uh, meditation on his word to us, brothers and sisters, if it's a matter of faith, I know you're going to grow. It's not a no matter if, it's, it's a matter of when. And then what you'll find is you'll have more to give to other people, too. Because out, out of the fountain of your own heart, of by God working there, God will overflow to other people, and you'll find yourself with thoughts and, and uh, encouragements that you wouldn't otherwise have without that constant repetition or rhythm of personal and private communion with God. So there you have it. Um, just going to kind of leave the ball in your court. Um, If this is something you're already doing, continue it. Maybe it's just recentering on this is what I'm doing. I'm doing this to get with God, not just to check it off my list. If it's something you're not doing, just start. And if you don't do it perfectly for the first week or the first month, that's okay. Just just start somewhere. If you only end up doing it once a week, just do it once a week. But make it a goal to go more than that, okay? Uh, Lord, I just give you these um, people, this family, and ask that you would just um, give us encouragement. Um, work in us, move in us by your grace, to just um, desire to be with you and um, that we would persevere in it. And if it's not always a... um fireworks show or uh, some kind of euphoric experience of the seventh heaven, I pray that we wouldn't be discouraged because most of the time it's not that way anyway. It's just us coming to you and you meeting with us in very simple and sometimes ordinary ways. And I thank you for your word. I thank you that your ears listen to us. I thank you that you have provided a way that we could come in to the gated community and to be with you um, in worship, both corporate and also in private. Um, continue to change our lives, Father, and conform us into the image of Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.